Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And hear God's own true and eternal word. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins and hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. And let us sing together Psalter 173, stanzas 1 through 3 together. And standing, if you may, 173. As I invite you again to open God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2. We hope to consider verses 1 through 10. And we are in this passage and with this theme before us, the glorious grace of God. As as I have done in in prior years, uh, the Sunday or so, or a couple Sundays before our, our coming conference, starting to focus upon the very theme that we're hoping to consider. And we'll do that this this evening, this afternoon, our, our conference is on the doctrines of grace. We will have five addresses um, being planned, and each one of them will be covering one of the points of the doctrines of grace. Um, commonly, we speak of the five points of Calvinism. That, that phrase, that phraseology has come because of these five major doctrines that we will be considered, considering Usually, the flow that follows when we name each one of the doctrines is with the acronym of TULIP, beginning with total depravity and going on to perseverance of the saints. Um, I have never studied the history of where, where that began, but of course it does help remember all of the doctrines. But it doesn't help us remember the order in which they were exposed and this is why if you, if you see um, the posters, we, we have the order of the doctrines 
that will be presented as they were delineated in the canons of Dort. Because in the Synod of Dort, that's when men sat down to discuss what had been being argued against the teachings of the Reformed churches. And they put together five points. They who were called the remonstrants put together five points that they wanted, in essence, to ask permission to the churches of Holland that churches could believe in those five distinct doctrines. They realized that it was so in-depth and it would be so needy of study to respond that they decided to call a synod. And during the many days and even months of the Synod of Dort, they discussed those doctrines and they came out with a document that is now one of our standards of faith, the Canons of Dort. And this is the order that follows in the Canons of Dort. Our first message will be on divine predestination because unconditional election is, in essence, the first point that is discussed in the in the canons. The second message will be on the atonement of Christ because that whole theme of the death of Christ being for His own people whereby not a single drop of His blood was, was used without avail. That's the second head of doctrine. So it will be our second message. Both of these will be on Friday night. This will be the first year that we'll have two sermons on one evening with a 30-minute break, that will be the time that we'll have fellowship and dessert. But then Saturday, we hope to come back at 2.30, and the first message will be on the total depravity theme, the corruption of man. It will be the first one on Saturday. I know it might be common on maybe, maybe skip the first because it's a little earlier, but I want to encourage everyone to come. Our brother Sam Paris. I've heard a sermon that he preached on this very theme, and I'm, I'm really believing this will be a wonderful sermon. It is so needful to the soul to realize who we were, and it's very solemn to consider that if you're still lost, it is who you are. And we will be seeing something of this doctrine today. The, the fourth session will be on the doctrine of regeneration, the irresistible grace. And then the last message is the last point in the Canons of Dort, and it is the last point of Tulip. It is the perseverance of the saints. Our brother, Dr. Neely, hopes to be preaching on that. Now, beloved, I, I want to encourage whoever is humanly possible to be here for each one of those. Because what I, what I want to argue today in, in from the pages of Scripture and with history as a testimony that this is so. Um, they, these are the truths that have been by the enemy assailed and obscured. And it is like a great strategy of Satan to keep Christians, even especially, not valuing or not even knowing about these truths. And when that happens, he wins the day. 
And there are rebellions, and there are wars, and there is great corruption in the church, and there is great deadness, even among those who call themselves believers. I'll I'll, I'll give you the proofs in just a little bit. But then comes the word proclaimed. God brings lights to the world. Men who are preachers and wives who are believing and sharing these truths with their neighbors. And revival happens. There is light. Light after the darkness became a motto after the Reformation because it really was that. There was darkness and deadness and then there was light. And it was simply and merely from preaching the word. And in a central way, it was these very doctrines that really puts all of the glory and all of the focus upon God and not man. But then it wasn't too long. The darkness started to come. And then there was light again. And we cannot think that we are living in days in which there is no more darkness and there is no more duty to be done as if all the churches everywhere believed these very truths and were living well. It's not the truth. Most of modern evangelicalism is man-centered. You enter upon certain churches and it's all about your experience. It is about your choice of a worship style. It is all about a band introducing um, an entertainment or a performance for the people. It, it, is, it is in essence like a, a, a Christian Broadway kind of scenario. It is like churches that have looked not into the word as to what God desires, but they have looked into the world. And they have entered that form we, we are in need of rediscovering the glory of the doctrines of grace. And the great danger of a reformed church is to simply say, we have it. We've got it. We've done it. We, we, we have the canons of Dort in the back of our Psalters. We, we, we don't really need to do these. And meanwhile, there may be children. Maybe, maybe I have read this list of tulip and to you, it's something very new. And you, you had completely forgotten irresistible grace. And you, and you really don't know what it's all about. Beloved, we cannot afford that. And, and, and I do pray that this very sermon can be used to, to begin a, a yearning to rediscover these doctrines, to go back to them, to value them, to talk to our friends about the sovereignty and the grace of God, and to be motivated to come and, yes, sit under one sermon after another where our minds will be going from one point to the next and realize why all of them are so precious and how they are combined and connected into one, really, And so in my first point, I want to bring this from darkness to light, um, continuing in in, in it, as it were, an element of, of introduction in terms of the darkness in history. Um, A lot of this might be, might be familiar to you, but it, it does help to, to bring us to the very text where where it explains where it all comes from, what we're going to, to speak of. When, when I talk about the darkness in history, um, I could go to many periods in the life of the church, sadly, and see moments of darkness. But I do want to come to the moments just before the Reformation. That was a time of exceptional darkness, in a sad way, of course. Just before the Reformation, if you look at the last three popes who were the leaders, seemed to be the leaders of the Christian church, Alexander VI was considered a monster of iniquity 
This was like the pastor of the pastors of the Christian church. That was his name. That's what they called him. Julius II was, a, was known as a politician as a, and a warrior, more than a pastor. And Leo X, who was the pastor who was there, the Pope, during the time of Luther, he was more interested in the Renaissance than in religion. In many ways, that would be someone today more interested in science than in Christ. Money and power, that, that was the norm um, you, you remember hearing of simony. Simony was the common practice where, where you would purchase or sell um, bishoprics. Um, there would be many pastors doing their biddings, and whoever had the highest bidding could be the bishop of a certain location because they paid to the church the right amount. Nepotism, that was when someone who was now a bishop, he could appoint to lesser positions those who were next of kin of his. There was plurality of offices and abuses through that. One Archbishop Albrecht of Mainz, he was both Archbishop of Magdeburg and also Bishop of Haldersbrat at the same time. It would be as if pastoring a church in one place and being the pastor somewhere else where it would be impossible to be in both places even on, on close Sundays. You've heard of Cardinal Wolseley of England. He was the Archbishop of York, but also the Chancellor of England. He received stipends from the kings of France, the kings of France, Spain, and the Doge of Venice. He had more than 500 servants. Talk about pastors of mega churches who might be quite rich. He, he had 500 servants plus. So that gives you a little glimpse in how there was so much corruption. In terms of immorality, you know, we look at our leaders and we're sad because we see immorality. In those days, it was like that too. James V of Scotland, he placed his illegitimate children as abbots of monasteries and placed his favorites in certain bishoprics. So when you met pastors in those days, it was either because they paid a lot of money or because they were the favorites of the kings or the favorites of some kind of bishop. That, that was the savor of the church. And the Bible was, in essence, nowhere to be found. There's, there's that reality that's hard to even imagine. Luther had a friend called Karlstad. Karlstad graduated with a Ph.D. in divinity. He had never seen a Bible and when you went to church, the priest would begin preaching, and it was in Latin. So nobody understood. The one word, perhaps, that they all knew and even paid money to hear was the Latin phrase, te absolvo. Because that would be the moment that after confessing to the priest, he would say, I absolve you. They understood what that meant. And that's what they pled for. And perhaps this was the summary of the whole problem. What they had simply lost was the right understanding of sin and salvation. In, in many ways, many people agree that the summary of everything was right there. And not just of salvation, but also of sin. They had completely lost sense of the gravity of what sin is. If it gets to the point where you think that by paying some money, sin will be forgiven, you have no idea what sin is. 
And so if that's your concept of sin, of course, salvation is just some kind of pat in the back with some kind of divine approbation. So that a Latin phrase from a priest would be enough and you could go home at peace. Now the whole penance system is where the whole problem stood. The penance system had basically um, these elements to it. You had to confess. You had to feel sorry. And then you had to do satisfaction. The feeling sorry element led you to the priest. There you did your confessions. The priest would do the math. And he would compute that based on what you have confessed, your penance is ABC, to satisfy. That was the word, satisfaction. And it really put upon you the weight that it's on you to satisfy. And the satisfaction could be, could be maybe some prayers that you would recite. Um, maybe it could mean, depending on the severity of the sin, that you would give a certain amount to the poor. Even pilgrimages could be put into the package of satisfaction. And if it really came to the point where, physically speaking, you were impossible to do those things, you could also simply pay money and you would receive a document called the indulgence. And you would hear the word, te absolvo. The great fear was, of course, the time that purgatory would have to be endured. Purgatory was the great weapon that was used hovering over the hearts of the people. Because if you died and certain amounts of your sins had not been satisfied, there could be millennia into purgatory. And that would mean suffering untold. And the mindset there was almost, in, I mean, was really in the same sense as, as what you're doing here. There you would be satisfying, satisfying, except it would be through your suffering, like, like a continuous burning and suffering. And after the amount of sin had been purged, then there would be heaven. And that hover over the hearts of the poor people to the point where they literally did pay money. They really did go up the steps on their knees so many times and really did recite so many Hail Marys and Our Fathers and and would pay the amount of money. That was the darkness. Now, now we know the story. We know that, that God opened the eyes of the people through the preaching of the Word. And God used men like Luther and Calvin and, and Knox and Beza and Zwingli. And, and all of a sudden, this, this was a revival of the Lord. They were proclaiming the way of salvation. And see, until now, no one had delineated that, that list of doctrines that I just gave you. That came later when, because, you have to think of it this way, the darkness was so great, you cannot imagine that just a little preaching will be fine and done, and in years 2022, we're, we're okay. We're not okay. See, in many ways, yes, the doctrines of grace made stride. People were finding out how to be saved. If we go now to the the area of Holland, everything was relatively well. There had been some challenges until Jacobus Arminius died. And the reason I put it this way is because it was interesting that while he was alive, he never dared publish anything that he wrote because he knew it would get him into trouble. But what he did dare do was teach 
to a degree his congregation and to a degree his pupils. He was, he was a college professor and he was also a pastor. He was the first Dutch pastor of the Dutch Reformed Church of the greatest Dutch city in Amsterdam. Amsterdam had just come forth out of the medieval Catholicism only three years and then they received Arminius. And so sad that when they did receive a pastor who could preach the plain truth, he was already muddling the waters with that works salvation mentality. And just for you to to have an idea, the things that he was teaching was basically this. He, He did not believe that man could be justified by God on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. You know how he thought and how he was teaching? He was teaching that when you believe, when you have your act of faith, God sees that, and that is your righteousness. It is that divine pat on the back. It is so good you believed, so now that's your righteousness. It just didn't have the name Roman Catholicism, but in essence it was going right back to that. But see, he was quiet about teaching that. It was his pupils and here and there. When he had debates, because people wanted to find out and make it very clear, he was very careful not to come forth so openly. But as soon as he died, his students got courage. They got together and they wrote the remonstrance. See, it was the students who were putting forth those questions. Can we believe that man is not totally corrupt. That there really is in my heart a certain possibility to believe. Can we preach that it is not God who chooses without any condition, but that He chooses those whom choose Him? Can we have freedom to believe these doctrines? Can we have freedom to believe that God's grace can come upon a heart, but man can be stronger and resist that grace? They, they literally were proposing that there could be a Christian church with those thoughts. And that's where the canons of Dort were written. Oh, beloved, William Cunningham, he's a church historian. He summarizes the error, error of Arminianism. He says this, It's a scheme for dividing or partitioning the salvation of sinners between God and sinners themselves. Instead of ascribing it wholly, as the Bible does, to the sovereign grace of God, the perfect and all-sufficient work of Christ, and the efficacious and omnipotent operation of the Spirit. Arminianism literally says, God does a certain amount, you do the rest, and then you're saved. So, yes, you must share the glory with yourself and God. And God is sitting as one waiting for your choice. He might want you to be saved, but He has no ultimate say because you might not choose Him. Beloved, what I'm saying might might be foreign to your ears thinking, I'm glad we don't have this in my church, but you need to understand, um, I don't know the percentages, but could it be 80% or so? of evangelical churches, that this is exactly what they say and what they believe. And it's even worse today than it was with those very first Arminians because you know that that fifth point, the perseverance of the saints, the remonstrants were not saying, oh, we lose salvation. No, 
They weren't proposing that. What they were proposing was perseverance of the saints has to be studied. We're not sure. It could be that we lose salvation, and maybe not. They weren't even certain about that. And the canons of Dort said, this is not something to be debated. The study has been done. The Bible is clear. No. If God has saved you, you are saved. You cannot lose. You cannot be the one to lose your own salvation. Not even death. Not even hell. Not even Satan. No sinner in the world can take the salvation of a saint away. But see, those Arminians wonder, maybe, maybe we could... Today, there are churches who are full-fledged believers that you lose your salvation. There's one denomination that says the first sin you commit, you lose it. And you need to be converted all over again. The next sin, you lose it again. That's not Christianity. That's Christ dying in vain. So this is... From darkness to light. I I have just brought a brief summary of history and shown that there have been epochs of light. Now in our second point, the gift of grace. Now we will go, and I do apologize. I never like to have too much of history when this is a sermon. But I, I trust you understand how this can help us understand how serious this is when we look at history. And so we have seen this element to help us understand how much we need these truths. And here we go to Ephesians chapter 2, and it really will answer where all this darkness comes from. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of the world, number one, according to the prince of the power of the air, number two, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, and among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, number three. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Beloved, it is sobering and necessary that you and I understand our prior history. The history of our own nature is what I mean, not a history of our people not American or European or African or or world history. I mean spiritual history. And this is not the history of Gentile people. This is the history of Jewish people too. Because verses 1 and 2, he is speaking of the Ephesians, how they were in this deadness of their sins. And look at verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation. Paul puts himself into the reality of the Ephesians, who are mainly Gentiles. And he's putting not just himself, but all the Jews. And he's saying, beloved, this is the reality about ourselves. We were born with a problem. We're going to follow this with this help, the very, the very structure here. What Paul is giving here in these first few verses is the condition of man, the description of man. And he starts with just a brief word about our moral condition. Then he says our conduct because of what controls us. And then thirdly, he gives a summary of our spiritual condition. 
The moral condition has to do with the things that we're doing and our morality. And the last thing, the spiritual condition is, is like a condition before God because of our moral condition. So just a couple words about the moral condition is here in verse 1. Ye hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. What is the condition of the natural man? What is your condition before you knew Christ? Deadness. This is what Paul is saying. Not half dead, not about to die, not in danger of death. We're speaking of a death worse than the one of the body. We're speaking of of a spiritual death, but it's death itself. Calvin says this, alienation of the soul from God. Another commentary says death, it's like the physical death, signifies absence of communication with the living. One who is dead spiritually has no communication with God. He is separated from God. So Paul is saying when we're born into this world, in our nature, that is our state. Spiritual deadness. Let me read what Matthew Henry says. Unregenerate souls are dead in trespasses and sins. All those who are in their sins are dead in sins. Yea, in trespasses and sins, which may signify all sorts of sins, habitual and actual, sins of heart and of life. Sin is the death of the soul. Wherever that prevails, there is a privation of all spiritual life. Sinners are dead in state, being destitute of the principles and powers of spiritual life and cut off from God the fountain of life. You see, when you understand this and somebody offers an indulgence, you say, are you crazy? Dollars, gold, silver can't resurrect my life. But when you start thinking that sin, you know, it's just a little mistake. Now, beloved, I I gave you medieval history. I gave you 1600 history. But beloved, what is our history of today? If you were to walk to the first person on the street and you say, do you believe there is sin? They might look at you as if you are from antiquity. Sin and its concept has completely disappeared from the world's concept. Even mistake, because what in God's word is abhorrent, is today being celebrated And if you do not join in, that is the sin. And they call it a crime. And you'll have to pay good money for it or time in jail. That's the day we live in, beloved. Do they know a concept of sin? No. But this explains everything. See, there's a deadness. But then from that deadness, that's a moral condition. Then we have here the conduct Paul uses three. When I gave that numbering of three, it is three expressions that speak of the conduct of the person who is lost. Now, it's not just a conduct, it's also a control. The word conduct is to give the idea of a behavior and a life that is being lived. But why is that life being lived? Because these three powers are controlling They are like masters, and the subject is a slave to these three things. It's like a a, a trinity of, of oppressors who look upon the sinner, and that sinner is the slave of these masters. 
This is exactly what the text is doing. The first master of the sinner is the world. He says, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. See, the walk is the conduct, and the world is the one commanding. You walk this way. The conduct of the world. In the world, it is not here, boys and girls. This is not the world, meaning the trees, the mountain, and the ocean. All of that is good. God created it. And it's our servant. And it glorifies Him. The world here is the world system. It is the way that people think in the world. The way they influence others to think. The decisions the world makes. The value the world has. The laws that the world enacts when they do it without, restrict, without respect to God's word. Um, the, the entertainment that they promote. The education that they provide. The world... This is why the Bible says that we are not to love the world. Because if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Why would you love the way the world thinks if God thinks in a different way? So the world is the first power and and authority that controls those who are dead in sins. But then he goes to a second one. He says, and you have to continue like this, wherein in time past you walked... And you go to the other according, according to the prince of the power of the air. So here's the prince of the power of the air, this this person. And it commands those who are dead in their sins to walk according to his ways. This prince of the power of the air is, of course, the devil. It is Satan. Elsewhere, he's called powers of darkness because there's a plurality. It's not just one devil. He has many of his foes along with him. And Paul is literally ascribing to this foe the control of humans who are spiritually dead. Beloved, let this open your eyes to understand. Sinners, unrepentant men and women, are slaves to Satan. That is who they are. That is what controls them. This is what God's word is saying. This is why the world's values are evil. That is why the decisions of the world are bad. This is why the powers are corrupted and why there are so many temptations. 1 John 5.19 says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You can't translate that in the wicked one. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the devil is called the God of this world. He's, he's controlling all things. Look what Calvin says about this, this reality. He says, what does he leave to us when he declares us to be the slaves of Satan? And, and then apply it to our hearts, beloved. Remember, this is us. See, this is our history. You see how it makes us cling closer to Christ and the cross? That's where I came from. I came from that slavery. And this is what Calvin is saying. What does he leave to us when he declares us to be the slaves of Satan and subject to his will so long as we live out of the kingdom of Christ? Our condition, therefore, though many treat it with ridicule or at least with little approbation, may well excite our horror. You see, beloved, this is what should make us um, um, be horrified is that we have neighbors who are in the slavery and they don't know it. And we have leaders who are in the slavery and they don't know it. And they, they tease others for telling that to them. 
See, even in the days of Calvin, he says they, 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 with little approbation, believe it or even receive it with ridicule. But what did Calvin do? He kept preaching. And he kept sending his treatises to the, to the kings and to the prelates and telling them, unless you know Christ, you're a slave to sin and to Satan and of the world and even of the flesh. Matthew Henry said, Wicked men are slaves to Satan, for they walk according to him. They conform their lives and actions to the will and pleasure of this great usurper. Now, let's bring an application right home to our hearts and to our young people. This is why a believer cannot dare marry an unbeliever. Dear believer, don't even consider dating an unbeliever because dating is not to be a mission field. Because you never have a mission field where you say, I'll I'll finally be your boyfriend if you convert. That is cruel. That is mean. We cannot do the conversion. We believe in a sovereign God who can. You can't have strings attached. You can be a friend And a good application here is young men, let girls be the friends of that unbelieving girl to minister to her heart, to not confuse her about romantic pursuits. So girls, you notice a girl visiting our church that's that's a friend to someone else, just go get to know her. See her as someone that needs to know Christ and girls who will know her and study the Bible with her. And if a young man comes to this church... It may be invited by a young girl. Men, it is your need to go and meet this young man. Know if he knows Jesus. Minister to him. Evangelize him. Say you want to meet with him and talk to him about Jesus. It is not the duty of a girl to minister to a boy or a boy to minister to a girl. That is dangerous territory if, if, if there are unbelievers on one side or the other. That is confusing The unbeliever will think that the spiritual pursuit is connected with the emotional. You don't want to go there. Because you cannot be yoked together with an unbeliever. And now you understand why Paul uses those strong words. What has the temple of God do with the temple of Satan? Do we understand the anatomy of the soul? Without Jesus, you are a slave of the world, a slave of Satan. And he doesn't stop there. There's a third sad, and in many ways, there's an element of more power to it because of how close this is. In verse 3, he says, among whom also, and here Paul puts himself, we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, the world, Satan, the flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's the third enemy. That's the third master. The reason I say he can be worse is because Satan is outside, the world is outside, but the flesh is inside. And all of you would agree with me that it's better to have a thief outside trying to barge into your home than to have him already in. Because then you need to leave. Indwelling sin is in. That's where the struggle really is. That's where it remains the rest of our lives. 
We never put the sword down. We're always fighting against sin. See, dear believer, and if you're not a believer, listen well. If you're not a believer, you are a slave of Satan, of the world, and even of your own flesh. So that it's not just indwelling sin. It's called the old man who is ruling over you. It's, it's not okay to be a, a respectable churchgoer. That will not get you to heaven. It is not okay to be someone who is moral, at least as best as you can. There, there can be blessings connected to that. But I have to be honest and say that is not enough. You need Christ. You need your eyes open to the real situation of your soul. You need freedom. If I saw a slave behind bars, I would not be content and smile and have a good time. I would try to break those bars. And how do you break these bars of corruption, of sin, and the mastery of Satan? You present Jesus. Jesus as a Savior of sinners. When I remember that I said that, that he gives the condition, the moral condition, and then the conduct, and then a little summary, and, and I'll just end this summary right now, the spiritual condition. The spiritual condition, there's a parallel. He says that these who are dead in their sins and trespasses are children of disobedience and children of wrath. It's, it's like a general summary, and some commentators speak of, of the parallel that there is here. The, these are children, and there's a father and there's a mother. The mother is disobedience. The father is wrath. And to say children of God's wrath, that is to say not only that God is angry with the sinner, but it's the idea of wrath because of judgment. Judgment is at hand. That's another idea that the world throws away. There's, there's no accountability. We don't have to worry. Beloved, there is. There is accountability. God's word says that after death, there will be judgment. You don't want to die as a child of God's wrath because that means impending judgment. How can you die? child of God's grace well notice after bringing this whole reality of sadness and the, there is the gift of grace and we see that it's all of grace it had to be right because a dead person cannot even ask for anything how can you, how can you believe to then have that righteousness that it was taught if, if you're dead and you can't even believe but notice what Paul does in verse 4 he says but God who is rich in mercy for his great love. So what we have now is God does here, in a sense, the the inverse. When he spoke of man, there was that moral condition. It was dead in sins and trespasses. Now he's going to describe God and what God does, the heart of God. And how does he start? He says there's rich mercy and his great love. It's not just mercy. It is rich. It is not just love. It is great. And then he says, wherewith he loved us. Now, how did he love us? After we've lived a life that was worthy to be loved, and after we were missionaries somewhere and led so many people to Christ, so that now he loves you? No. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins. You see what this means? That here's the sinner. When Paul was receiving the cloaks of the people who were persecuting Stephen, 
there's this reality that yes, the wrath of God was upon Paul, but there was still love for Paul. And God knew that that man Paul would one day hear and believe. That was his grace. Being a murderer of Christians was not a sin that would surpass the grace of Almighty God. This is what we mean, dear dear boys and girls. If you're trying to say, why why is pastor talking about grace so much? What does that really mean? I, I want you to understand this one thing. It just means how good God is. No matter how bad you are, God is always better than our badness. And He can see a sinner in His badness and He never sends away His hope to be saved unless He hears the Gospel and He says, I want nothing of it and His whole life He rejects Jesus. But when God gave His Son, God was in that saying, There is a Savior who is available for sinners. And our duty as pastors is to compel them to come. Only God has the power to make you come. That irresistible grace that we hear of, we will hear it in the sermons on Saturday. Oh, when Christ comes with His Spirit, it is what we want, isn't it, dear beloved? No, it doesn't matter the eloquence, doesn't matter the illustrations. I can preach my heart out, but we need the Spirit to come irresistibly to the heart of the lost. Because see, He's dead. He's dead, not half dead, completely dead. And not, no sermon, worldly speaking, like my words cannot bring life. But through what I preach, as I preach Christ crucified, the Spirit will come and snatch that heart to Himself. And break it away out of that trifold foe of Satan, the world, and flesh. And you become a trophy of Christ. But as you hear the gospel, you must respond. You must say, save me, Lord Jesus. Even me. I believe thy rich mercy. I believe this great love. And then we have God's actions now, let me show you one thing that's happening in the text. We, we have the King James Version, and you know how we start reading. And it says, And you hath he quickened. And that's quite a long phrase. And you see that it's in italics, which means it's not there. And somebody could, of course, think, well, how could the King James put that whole phrase there if it's not there in the, in the um, manuscripts? In the manuscripts, it reads like this. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked, etc. Why did it include, hath he quickened? It's the grammar of the text that forced the translators to go ahead and do that. Even though it's describing who we are, we were dead in trespasses, we, we walked according to the course of this world, etc. Grammatically speaking, it's, it's a one sentence all the way to verse 7. The subject is not us. Even though the whole scene is how bad we are, the subject is God. And the three verbs are these. Verse 5 is the key passage, and it says, and then verse 4, but God, so this is where the subject is introduced, but God, who is rich in mercy and his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, verse number 1, hath quickened us together.
Well, verse number one is actually, um, yeah, verse number one, quickened us together with Christ. God quickened us. And then look at verse six. And hath raised us together. Notice, notice the parallelism. They're all the verb and together. Quickened us together, raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places. So you know what the translators did? They saw, well, here's the first verse, verse 5, that, that verb that's referring to God. So let's go ahead and put that verb there so we can understand. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what God does. And, and boys and girls, quickened, that, that means he gives life. He gives life. He raises us up, which is a resurrection unto life. And this, which there's a mystery to it. He makes us to sit together in heavenly places. One commentator says, Believers are positioned spiritually in heaven where Christ is. We are already there spiritually before we arrive there physically and spiritually as well. It's a spiritual body that we'll receive to enter heaven, but we're already seen as being sitting there in heavenly places. Beloved, this is what what I mean about the glorious grace of God. This is what God does. We are threefold into the control of that deadly triad and God quickens, He raises he makes us to sit together. And, and then we understand how this is all done. If I continue reading in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In verse 8, for by grace are ye saved. It is all of grace. Now we understand it. Grace means you and I don't deserve it. We've done nothing to merit what God is doing. But how do you receive it? How can it become yours? And then a word that is 100% God-given, and yet the sinner must 100% experience it. Or you could say, um, live it through faith. Paul is very earnest to make it clear that man gets no glory, and so he's going to emphasize it. And that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So he tells us not only that faith does not come from our own heart and production, and he says why. If it were the fact that you and I could produce faith in order to be saved, we would boast. We would pat ourselves in the back. We would arrive in heaven and think, wow, Christ did a lot. He did die on the cross. He did suffer a lot, but, but I, I believed. And who would receive glory? And even if it's sharing, God shares no glory with anyone. And this is why, again, I mean, it's the glorious grace of God. Man receives absolutely no glory because it's all his work. And yet Paul is the very one who emphasizes that you and I must believe. God gives it as a gift and you find yourself trusting, believing, embracing. 
and this is why in, in our experience, there's some of us who think, well, it's, of course I believed it came from me. I'm the one believing. It's, it's so much an act that comes from us in, in a sense of believing that we start thinking it originated in us. And that's where the error lies. But this is where, where we can understand. See, yes, it is a gift of the Spirit, but the Spirit does not come alongside you and believes for you. See, Jesus gives you faith as a gift, but He doesn't then, in your heart, believe for you. And this is why I mean we, we, we can say very safely, as long as we understand where it comes from, we can also say that I must believe. My very heart has to exercise the very faith. And yet in my mind I'm understanding it did not originate in my heart. That keeps me from being an Arminian. Because the Arminian says it comes from my heart. And God applauds it and makes me righteous. Gives it to me. I'm the one who in a sense became righteous. He gives me the diploma as if that's their mind. No. True Christianity understands it's all his work. And true Christianity goes to our knees and says, Lord, do that work. I will not start pleading. I will not stop pleading. I learned today that I am dead. I learned today that I am vile. I learned today, Lord, that if, if you will not save me, I am lost. I will go to hell. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't want to serve Satan anymore. I don't want to serve the world. I don't want this sin in my heart to be my, my master. Beloved, have you ever prayed that way if you're not saved today? You are commanded in God's word to beseech, to storm the throne room of heaven. The the phrase that the Puritans took to, to take heaven by storm. And the moment you do that, beloved, this is where your encouragement should come. That is faith that God gave to the heart of the sinner. Because that dead person would have no interest to knock on heaven's door. So you do it. Believe, trust, embrace Christ. And in the same breath, give Him all the glory. Because it's His, not yours, not mine. The preacher is dead, humanly speaking. It's the Spirit. It's Christ who has that sword that we saw this morning from Revelation that's two-edged. It's God who uses that sword from the Lord Jesus into the heart of the sinner to bring you life. And then to end, from the gift of grace, I do want to end with just a few words in our third point, the grace that gives. Because this grace that you receive, you would think that this is now, I just want to bask in the sunshine of salvation. I was lost and now I am found. I am found. I was blind, but now I see. And, and Christianity could be just an eternal rejoicing because there is enough worship to last all of eternity. But as soon as he speaks of salvation, of this grace that saves, verse 9 says, not of works, lest any man should boast. In verse 10 he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What is so emphatic about this verse? This verse comes as a great help. If you received grace, you will now be a giver. 
It is a grace that gives. Workmanship is someone who works, who serves. He says, in what way? Good works. So my question is, are you serving the Lord in any way? You know, there may be those who would say, well, I know I'm not a believer. And the danger there is that maybe you think, if I serve him enough, maybe he'll save me. No, that's, that's work salvation. You need his grace. But the danger is that there are many who may say, I'm fine. I believed. I, I did what the pastor said. I prayed the prayer. I've even been in a church where I can raise my hand. And I, I prayed so many times for God to save me. I know I'm saved. The question is, are, could you be called a workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works? Are you serving the Lord? What are the tangible ways? Are you evangelizing anyone? Are you encouraging missionaries? Are you supporting the mission field? Are you praying for ministers? Are you serving the needy in any tangible way? Show me the needy that you are serving, that you have met, that you have taken some warm meal to, a cup of water. Are you getting to know people in their needs? Are you getting to know how you can provide what they need? Are you planning? Are you, are you trying to get involved in any ministry in, in our own congregation? Do, do you know what ministries there are? And are you trying to make yourself available? Do you serve maybe as, as a Sunday school, an assistant? Do you support the Sunday school volunteers by maybe coming yourself or bringing your children? Do you eagerly help in whatever you see that the church needs, the, the sound system, the, the building and grounds, the deacons? Have you ever come to the deacons and said, you know, how can I help? Have you ever come to the elders and said, can you, can you say one way that I can serve in the congregation or in our denomination? We have youth groups. Have you ever offered your home? Have you, have you thought of supporting those who do offer their home? Have you thanked them? Have, do you know who the chaperones are or those who help? Have you offered yourself to be a chaperone in some of our youth camps? We, 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 we have people who help with, with transporting our young people or to be there with them. Have you thought of volunteering to maybe be a youth group leader? If, if you are a young person, have you ever thought of serving with the junior young people? If you're a college and career young man or woman, have you ever thought of helping with the younger young people and being there for them? There are neighborhoods to be visited. There are homeless people in Patterson, in Jersey City, in New York City. What I dream one day is to get a bus into New York City or our van, spread ourselves little packets, little special things, Gospels of John, good tracts, maybe candy, toothpaste, and a whole day to visit in New York City, not to view the skyline, but to see the hearts and sit beside them, find out their story. If they're addicted, why are they addicted? If they don't like the, the shelters, why don't they don't like the shelters? Can I pray with you? 
What's your name? I'm going to pray for you at home. You know, some of our young people help with, with uh, <clears throat> um, Market Street Mission. You need to think in every way that you're doing that, you're doing it unto Christ. They need volunteers. The Good Shepherd Missions needs volunteers. The Lighthouse Pregnancy Ministry needs volunteers. The New York Gospel Mission needs people to go and help. Jason and Wilhelmina Kroll that we prayed for, they need letters from people who would say, how are you doing? In what way can we help? How can we pray for you? Dr. DeVries and Dr. Miskin um, in South Africa. Jane Korovar, Bernie Pennings with Tana Banus in Indonesia. When we receive the glad tidings, you'll find so many names. They're all people that need serving. And see what... God's word says that those who were dead, by God's grace, are now workmanship created in Christ Jesus. See, it's still of grace. It's not that I'm the one who has a free will to choose this work. No, that is ordained that we should walk in them. This is what's so sad. In the Reformed realm, there are those who are so staunch Calvinists who understand that they were elected by God, but they're not moving a finger in the kingdom of God. They just know how to debate and how to win the debate. But they're not serving. This grace that we have spoken of is a grace that gives because it comes from a God who gave His only begotten Son. And beloved, when we rediscover these truths, that in a sense is what a revival is. Because we realize we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to fear. We only have a God to be glorifying in the rest of the days that we have in this world. And may he give us the grace to do it. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we pray, Lord, that we may learn the reality of where we came from. Lord, that it would humble us. Lord, tear down any stronghold of pride that may be in our hearts. Sometimes, just because we may be older professors of faith and no longer struggling perhaps with sins that were in our younger years, we start becoming proud. Lord, forgive us. For what are we proud of? For we have received everything out of grace. We cannot be proud of the deadness that we would remain had not thy grace touched us. We thank thee, Lord, for the sobriety that thy word brings us to, to realize who we are by nature, that we would not fantasize anything great this is what the world does. And Lord, we confess, we get effect, affected by the world. Forgive us, Lord. Help us not to seek the applause of men, the favor of the world. Help us, Lord, to seek their souls and that we would be Christ testimonies to them and that they may be saved. Lord, may we live in days where the tides would turn because so many who would see Jesus in thy people would want Jesus 
and then even governments can be changed because of so many Christians. But Lord, we leave all that to Thee. We, we are not praying primarily, Lord, for better peaceful government days. We are praying, Lord, for personal sanctification personal contrition we are praying lord for salvation of the lost and we plead lord that thou would do so that thou would save our sons and daughters that thou would save the fathers and mothers who are not yet believers oh lord open our eyes to how truly thou art a gracious god and that we would give thee all the glory for in jesus name we pray amen